Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Dreadfully off track. Those words of warning from King Charles at COP28. I speak to former climate advisor Gina McCarthy on this year's summit. And Israel resumes military bombardment of Gaza as a seven-day truce with Hamas ends. We bring you the latest from the region. Then a mother takes on a Mexican cartel. New York Times reporter Azam Ahmed tells an astonishing tale of revenge in his book, Fear is Just a Word. Plus, the staggering cost of caring for the dying. Two U.S. reporters speak to Hari Srinivasan about their series, Dying Broke. And finally, a banjo prodigy from Brooklyn. Nora Brown joins me to discuss her musical inspiration. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Bianca Goladriga in New York, sitting in for Christiane Amanpour. Britain's King Charles took to the stage at the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai, saying that the world is approaching, quote, dangerous, uncharted territory as the climate crisis deepens, with 2023 set to be the warmest year yet. Take a listen. I pray with all my heart that COP28 will be another critical turning point towards genuine transformational action at a time when already, as scientists have been warning for so long, we are seeing alarming tipping points being reached. And he's not alone. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had these words of warning. We cannot save a burning planet via fire holes of fossil fuels. As day two of the summit closes, the pledges are coming thick and fast. Over 100 countries making a major new food pledge, vowing to reduce the impact of agriculture on our planet. More than 110 countries are agreeing to triple renewable energy by 2030. And delegates formally adopted a loss and damage fund to transfer finances to countries hit hardest by the climate crisis. Ahead of the conference, I spoke with former White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy to get her steer on the importance of this year's COP. Gina McCarthy, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you for joining us. So this year, COP28, as we know, is in Dubai. The leader of the summit is Sultan Al-Jaber, the UAE oil chief executive. That has some people wondering whether this year's meeting is being greenwashed, or if you think perhaps it is important to have fossil fuel leaders at the helm of these types of events. You know, there's been a lot of news around this of late. And, you know, it's very challenging, obviously, to have the oil and gas companies at the table. But we have to have these discussions. And frankly, I think the UAE, because of all these challenges, are going to try to work as hard as they can to really move progress forward. So I'm hoping rather than this being a detriment, uh, 
that it becomes a real spark for action moving forward because Lord knows we need some, some real impactful outcomes from uh, this COP. Well, as you know, on the eve of the summit, there were leaked documents um, from the Center of Climate Reporting leaked to the BBC, uh, suggesting that the UAE planned to use this summit to make additional oil deals. Now, we should note the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, which Sultan al-Jaber uh, leads, did not reply to CNN's request for comment. But the company previously told CNN that any suggestion that it was using the climate talks to promote itself is incorrect and baseless. What do you make of the timing of these leaked documents? And do you think they could possibly derail some of what you say is an important aspect of who's attending and where this summit is taking place? Look, I have no independent judgment available on this, this issue other than, than what I'm reading. And again, I clearly think that the UAE understands that, that this COP needs to be about reducing our fossil fuel emissions. This COP needs to take a stand about phasing out fossil fuels. We can no longer ignore or look at this as just the glamour of clean energy, which of course is essential, but we have to be very clear-eyed. And I think now that the UAE is very obligated to make their position known and that we have to keep pushing, not just to ensure that clean energy beats out fossil fuels, but to do as many suggest, which is to really set some stringent goals so we can triple renewable energy by 2030. We have to be strong. We have to get investments out there. And, and frankly, the investments in the developing world right now don't match our obligations from the developed world. And that has to be addressed as well. So given all of that, what would you call a successful summit? We have to address the loss and damage fund, which is what I was referring to. We have to get significant resources on the table to actually help the developing world move forward. That is the only way that we're going to be legitimately addressing the real challenge of climate change where it's, it's most extreme. We have to also look at how we, again, address a phase down, at least, if not a phase out of fossil fuels, and begin to address that in a more specific way. I am really hoping that, that tripling uh, renewables by 2030 is something that, that we can actually move forward and embrace as a goal. I think in the U.S., we can clearly see uh, doubling. And now with the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been so successful, we have the opportunity to achieve a tripling uh, in renewable energy capacity by 2030. We're going to push for that. But the other thing we're trying to make sure we do, frankly, and work that I'm doing with Mike Bloomberg, is to make sure that subnationals get a place at the table. Look, he is actually working um, with Al Jabbar to actually make sure that there is a, a sort of groundbreaking local uh, climate action summit the first couple of days at the COP. 
Because frankly, we know that the federal governments are great. These national ideas are wonderful. The international discussions need to move. But it's only going to happen if communities start to get engaged, if subnationals can get together. We know the challenges of burning fossil fuels and what it's done to actually impact health across the world, how many people and kids have been lost. Fundamentally, this is about the health and well-being of every individual in this world. And fossil fuels are taking away their ability to lead healthy lives. We have to go after this every step of the way. And I think subnationals can help. You know, technology has, has played a huge role over the past decade or so on the issue of grappling with uh, fossil fuels and, and the amount that are burned by big emitters like the United States and China, um, first and second there. But are you concerned that um, companies and countries in turn are relying too heavily on technology like carbon capture in hopes of engineering our way out of climate change? Is that more of a lazy approach or a get-out-of-jail-free card? Because some experts that I've talked to are, are worried that that's the path that, that companies and countries are going down. I think we have to really be aware of this. Um, and, and I am, you know, concerned myself about how much carbon capture and sequestration can actually bring to the table, as opposed to resolve the issues that we need to face. Um, it could easily become a Band-Aid approach. It could easily be big investments and limited benefits. So I agree that we have to look at all of these challenges with, with open eyes and make sure that we're not giving up the opportunity to really have much longer term transition to clean energy, which frankly, in the end, is what we have to look at, not reducing, just reducing emissions or burying them in the ground, but doing the hard work that it's going to take to make sure that we have the right balance of technologies so that we have these longer term solutions. Gina, it, it, there's no doubt that President Biden and this administration have done more in addressing climate change than, than any of his predecessors um, with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, namely. But it, it is notable that the, two, the world's two largest carbon emitters, the leaders of those two countries, China and the United States, will not be attending this summit. Uh, they met in California just a couple of weeks ago. But I'm wondering if you think it's a missed opportunity and what message does it send to not have them in attendance this year? Well, I know that that President Biden is, you know, certainly engaged in, in many other world issues, most notably the challenge um, in, in Israel and the Gaza. And, and I know that Secretary Blinken um, is coming which is, I think, uh, very good news because of his ability to understand these issues and bring gravitas to the table. But I have to say that the agreement between the U.S. and China, to me, set the stage for action. Now, I know a lot of folks may not think that this was as detailed as it needed to be, and certainly it wasn't. But think about the relationship between China and the U.S. before the announcement of the agreement that was reached to really focus on methane and forest protection and plastics and other key issues. This was a signal sender. This was an effort to say that, yes, we've had our disagreements, but we can move forward together. And if China and the U.S. don't act together and aggressively, we will not win this climate challenge. We all know that. 
Yeah, let's give our viewers a sense of the agreement that you talked about that was reached between President Biden and President Xi at the ASEAN summit two weeks ago. And that was, quote, to pursue efforts to triple renewable energy capacity globally by 2030 and to accelerate the substitution for coal, oil and gas generation. Uh, you hit on something that, that I'm wondering if concerns you and other experts in, in this field, and that is the war in, in Israel and Gaza. Um, and the past year before that, a year and a half, we've been covering the war in Ukraine as well. Is there concern that these geopolitical events are prioritizing attention that, that maybe could have been directed towards climate change? You know, I, I don't know how you can minimize, anybody can minimize the, the need to have attention focused on this issue, because it's not just about Israelis and Palestinians. It is much broader than that. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we can, can both rub our stomachs and tap our head at the same time. Clearly, we have to address climate change. I think, frankly, part of the challenge is to make sure that we recognize that there are challenges internationally, that politics can be put aside, but need to be managed internally in the climate process. Because after all, I think the developing world is seeing that the developed world has prospered from fossil fuels for far too long and damaged our ability across the world to actually live healthy lives. And we now have to recognize that we need to develop investments that are appropriate to actually advance the developing world and provide us an opportunity for much more stability. I think a clean energy future is the goal to provide stability across the world and a more secure future. Look, we are seeing uh, terrible challenges across the globe that are impacting communities everywhere in the Middle East and well beyond. We have to face the fact that these challenges in countries, uh, many of them are exacerbated by the poverty, by the challenges of energy not being available, by high energy prices. These are challenges, food scarcities, Many of these challenges are exacerbated directly by climate change and are causing some of the instability that we're seeing in the world today. So I don't think we need to dissect the two issues. I think we need to link them. Well, people around the world uh, in this country, they might not be uh, aware of it, but their lives are impacted by climate change every single day. We cover it here um, every month. There's a record-breaking uh, month when it comes to heat waves. Um, each year is hotter than the previous year. We've covered flooding, we've covered fires, we've covered heat waves and droughts and hurricanes, you name it. Uh, are, you, are you concerned at all that, that we have become desensitized to these types of events um, and view it as our new normal? I don't think so. Um, I think, I, I, unfortunately, I think in every country, and clearly in the United States, it took a long time for people to get their, their arms around climate change, but it's hitting them in the face now. I think they're not ignoring it, and instead I think they're recognizing that it poses a significant threat to communities all across the United States and frankly all across the world. We can see the damages. The, the challenge that, that I try to focus on is how do we make sure 
that the resolution to climate change, if you can call it that, or the action plan on climate, has to be one that is optimistic, not sacrificial. Gina McCarthy, if there were ever a time for optimism, it's now. So we'll take whatever we can get. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. It was great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, also in Dubai at COP28, King Abdullah of Jordan, who highlighted how climate and humanitarian challenges are linked. Here's what he said. We cannot talk about climate change in isolation from the humanitarian tragedies unfolding around us. The massive destruction of war makes the environmental threats of water scarcity and food insecurity even more severe. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Well, fighting has now resumed between Israel and Hamas after a week-long truce. Let's get the latest from correspondent Oren Lieberman in Tel Aviv. Oren, uh, the, the truce has expired. The fighting has begun. Um, I know there's some talk behind the scenes among the Qataris about renewing a truce. What's the likelihood that that could happen and what would that entail? Those efforts are ongoing, despite the fact that the war and all the fighting have restarted since about 7 o'clock this morning here local time. The question, of course, how likely is that to come to fruition? It's worth remembering that the truce itself came about because of weeks of negotiations, difficult negotiations at times, during the war. So it at least is theoretically possible to get back to a point of truce. And a senior State Department official exp expressed some level of optimism that they could get there, perhaps even in the next day or two. But challenges, of course, remain. Country officials said the resumption of hostilities has made that even harder. And then, of course, there's the conditions and the requirements for a truce to be carried out. Israel's requirement is still per the original agreement, which is Hamas must release 10 women and children for a 24-hour pause in the fighting. Israel believes there are at least enough women and children for one or two more days of a pause. Hamas says there aren't, in fact, enough women and children to release for a pause. Instead, they wish to focus on expanding the truce agreement and lengthening the pause in the fighting itself to elderly men being released and then men and women of fighting and reservist age in Israel. They see Israel rejected any attempt to have those conversations. So you can see how difficult the negotiations are, but the efforts are still ongoing, even as we see in, uh, incredibly intense fighting pick up once again in Gaza. Talk about the fighting that we've seen pick up where they, they left off. Obviously, geographically, they've gone to southern Gaza. But in terms of tactics, Israel has been warned and Israeli officials have publicly said and acknowledged that their approach to this war now has to change and become more surgical. Uh, are they doing that? Are we seeing that in, in the first 24 hours? It's hard to get that sense right now. We're 13 hours and some minutes into here. And all we see now is the results of heavy Israeli bombardment in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza and Rafah, which is near the main border crossing between Israel, uh, I'm sorry, between Gaza and Egypt. Worth noting, there are trucks lined up outside of that border crossing that have not gone through. According to an eyewitness, 
that we have spoken to who is at that crossing, and that's another critical problem for Gaza. But in terms of those Israeli strikes, they occur in southern Gaza, which is where Israel told Palestinians in the north to evacuate to. They have tried to drop leaflets saying to evacuate certain areas that are war zones, and even tried to drop a QR code that leads you to a map of Gaza with certain parcels that they may then be able to use to see where operations will be and where to move from. The challenge, of course, is you need internet connectivity for that, and that is not something that's been guaranteed over the course of this war. So challenges remain. You're absolutely right. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was here basically demanding that Israel have concrete plans in place to protect civilians as we move into the next phase of this war. Health authorities in Hamas-controlled Gaza say that more than 100 uh, Palestinians have already been killed in the resumption of fighting. And as we look at what's happening, certainly seems likely that that number may rise. And Oren, we've gotten more information from the IDF uh, about uh, at least three Israeli hostages now confirmed dead in Gaza. Can you tell us more about that? I don't have the names right in front of me at this moment, but this is part of the IDF's operations there. They confirmed that three more Israelis were killed in Gaza uh, post-October 7th, post the terror attack. Uh, sometimes it has taken a tremendous amount of time to be able to confirm this. Uh, for many of the loved ones and their families, they were, they were missing or considered kidnapped but without any definitive information. So this is, is at least an answer on that and certainly hints at the, at the horror of that day as the families learn more and as Israel tries to figure out more on exactly how many hostages are left and where negotiations might try to go. Yeah, some of that information coming from the hostages that have already been released and no doubt traumatized uh, young children and elderly among them. Orrin Lieberman, thank you. We turn now to Mexico, where this week saw the worst day of violence against journalists in a decade. Five were shot and wounded, four of them in the Guero State, the scene of many deadly turf battles. Former New York Times bureau chief for Mexico, Azam Ahmed, has seen violence like this up close, as well as a desperate fight against it. His new book, Fear is Just a Word, tells the story of a mother seeking revenge for the death of her daughter murdered by one of the most violent cartels in the world. And Azam Ahmed joins me now from Mexico City. Azam, um, uh, congratulations on both a beautiful and heartbreaking story. Uh, a mother in search of her daughter and ultimately once she finds out that her daughter has been killed in search for those killers and bringing justice to her daughter. Um, tell us about Miriam and her daughter, Karen. Thank you for having me. Uh, Miriam Rodriguez was, uh, was a merchant in a local market in the town of San Fernando, which is about 70 miles from the Texas border. She sold cowboy boots, mother of three children, and then her town became an inferno when two Warren cartels made it sort of the center of their fight. And her daughter was kidnapped. And like any parent, she did whatever she could to try and rescue her. She paid ransoms, multiple. She went to the police. She went to prosecutors, asked anyone to help her, uh, anyone for help. And no one really came to her aid. And so she sort of almost broke with love and just started to go after the individuals responsible herself. She sort of became a one woman law and order episode almost. She, she began to figure out who these people were, track them down, and eventually get, the, get many of them arrested with, uh, with an extraordinary amount of, of sort of resilience and perseverance. Now, Karen was kidnapped and killed in 2014. It is stunning, though, one of the takeaways in Miriam's quest to seek justice for her daughter is that she did it on her own, as you just laid out. There, all of the authorities weren't there to, to do the job for her, 
I would imagine that this speaks not only for Miriam's case, but for countless other family members who are looking and seeking for, for their loved ones. Absolutely. There's 100,000 people disappeared in Mexico. Um, and disappeared, they literally means one day they just vanished and families have no idea what happened to them. Oftentimes, uh, uh, organized crime and sometimes government forces will take people and they won't, you know, it's, a, it's sort of part of the dark war continuum. If you disappear someone, there's no crime, there's no body. And so it became a, a prominent feature of the, the war on drugs here in Mexico. And essentially, Miriam's case was a for me, an iconic case. But there's so many others like her. In fact, she began to represent other people who had children who had been disappeared. And her agenda was essentially find out what's happening, pressure the government to do something, because I mean, the way I describe it in the book is Mexico is a truant state. You know, they're absent. You can't go to government officials and ask them for help in a situation like this, which is why it's gotten so, it's become such a widespread problem. And the idea that you can lose the most precious thing in your life in an instant and have no recourse sort of is what drives this narrative. The Mexican military, no doubt, ha has resources. And this quote-unquote fight against drugs, war against the cartels, really began uh, in earnest in 2006. And yet administration after administration after administration has failed at doing just that. Why, why is that? And what in your reporting have you been able to reveal in answering some of these tough questions? That's absolutely right. I mean, the government opted for a militarized approach because they didn't have a functional law enforcement approach. And I think one of the things that I try to do in the book is trace back when that began, how that evolved, how we got to where we are today in Mexico, where essentially you've, you've got a nation where the rule of law is rather broken. Um, and in some ways it began shortly after the Mexican Revolution when they were creating a new Mexican state. And law enforcement almost was a wing of government corruption. Over the years, there was never an effort to build a functional independent police. There was never an effort to build a functional and independent judiciary. So you flash forward today and there's an inversion where organized crime has become far more powerful and you just don't have the capacity to, to structure a, a law enforcement or police body that can confront this. And so the answer has been meeting violence with violence, sending out highly trained Marines and, and uh, soldiers to combat the cartels, but in the end it's just sort of a, the same reckless cycle of violence. And none of the actual uh, originating factors of this violence are being corrected. They're just being amplified. And corruption has played a huge role in this as well. Tell us about the Zeta cartel, a brutal, brutal cartel that you describe behead people, dissolve bodies and assets, even made people fight to the death just for their amusement. Uh, sick mindset here. This is ultimately the cartel that killed Karen. Tell us more about them. Exactly. So the Zetas were a wing of a much older cartel that began around the 1930s, um, ironically smuggling alcohol into the United States during Prohibition. Uh, over time, that cartel switched from smuggling contraband across the U.S. border to smuggling cocaine. It became a hugely profitable business. As that cartel evolved, um, and as the war on drugs started to begin, the leader of the cartel, who sometime in the late 90s, decided he needed an armed wing. Essentially, as politics and power were changing in Mexico, he kind of had this epiphany that violence was going to be the new currency of power, this sort of dark pioneering vision for the future. So he hired a bunch of former, Mexi former actually active 
Mexican Special Forces soldiers. And those, that group became the Setas. And they were sort of his armed wing. They battled other cartels, and eventually they came to take a very prominent role in this cartel. And where the book sort of, I think, what the book is trying to do is essentially explain how this cartel and the genesis of this cartel explains in some ways the genesis of, you know, the failure of the state in Mexico. So the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel, who are partners, eventually break. And that war is what Miriam Rodriguez and her family are trapped in the middle of because it takes place in this state right on the border with the United States, Tamaulipas, and basically engulfs the entire state. And then later, much of the nation in violence as these two, these two cartels fight it out and the Mexican government responds to their violence by militarizing their strategy and essentially sending in soldiers to fight the Zetas, who themselves were former soldiers. This is sort of a David and Goliath type of mission that Miriam is on, and she succeeds uh, uh, quite impressively. I want to read an extract from the book here um, before we get to what she was determined to, to spend the rest of her life doing and fighting for. She said, well, it's been a month, and they are not going to bring her back to me, Miriam said. I know this in my heart as a mother. She said that Karen was never coming home, at least not in the way Miriam had once hoped, because Karen, her youngest, was dead. There was no self-pity in her voice, no tears or currents of pain spread across her face. She stood for a moment, choosing her words. For the rest of my life, with the time that I have, I'm going to find the people who did this to my daughter, Miriam said, and I'm going to make them pay. And make them pay, she did. At least five of her targets got arrested. Six more died at the hands of Mexican Marines until she ultimately succumbed to these cartels and was killed on Mexico's Mother Day, right, in 2017. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it's an extraordinary tale because, again, there are so many people. You can lose count of the number of people who have suffered tragedy in Mexico, and many of them have to go on living in this sort of hollow state, missing their children, missing their husbands. And Miriam sort of became entrepreneurial in her grief. She found a way to channel that pain into rage and purpose. And she did something extraordinary. And it was one of the reasons that I thought her story could be a stand-in for so many other stories and a vehicle to describe what's happening in Mexico. I mean, the lengths she went to were incredible. She wore disguises, she dyed her hair. She would stake out homes where she believed the cartel members were living for days on end without leaving the abandoned house from which she was operating. Um, she would go into these open desert areas and begin searching for remains. One of the tragic uh, elements of the, the disappeared is that people, people are so desperate to find their loved ones, they just dig holes in deserts and in mountains, hoping they might strike or get lucky. You know, sometimes they have wow. evidence that says maybe someone's there, but other times it's just, it's all they can do. And I think for her, as she said, you know, with the life that I have left, you know, she in many ways was upholding the most, you know, the most sacred pact in the world between a mother and its child and, and her child. Oh. And that was essentially what drove this entire quest. And there are elements of this which are, you know, straight yeah. out of a Hollywood movie. It is action-packed and like thrilling and you see her succeed and you see these people yeah. tremble before her. You see these inept and corrupt and indifferent state officials tremble before her. But, but ultimately it's also, you know, a, a tale of kind of the, the, I guess the inescapable cycles of violence and corruption that many Mexicans, millions live in.
And uh, Azam Ahmed, thank you so much for telling us the, this story um, th that we know, as in the intro noted, that, that so many Mexican journalists there also are trying to investigate yeah. and sadly putting their lives on the line as well. Um, thank you for your reporting. Thank you for bringing this, this really heartbreaking but really powerful story. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to be here. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, turning now to the end-of-life care in the United States, an emotional time for so many families and also a time for many who are forced into financial ruin. Reporters Reed Abelson from The New York Times and Jordan Rao from KFF Health News talked to dozens of families and experts about the tremendous toll of taking care of dying loved ones in a country with no coherent elderly care system. Their New York Times series is called Dying Broke, and here they are talking to Hari Srinivasan. Bianca, thanks. Reed Abelson of the New York Times and Jordan Rao of KFF Health News. Thank you both for joining us. When you were starting out to do this series, Dying Broke, what were you setting out to find? I think we wanted to learn what people's experience is and trying to be able both to find, but also very importantly, to afford care when they get older. Jordan, what are the kind of assumptions that we all have about how our elder care is going to go that, well, your series really challenges? Uh, well, one of the big ones is that uh, so many people think that Medicare covers long-term care, and it doesn't. So long-term care is, you know, if you need a personal aid to help you because you have dementia or if you need help going to the bathroom or whatever, and it's totally separate. And that's really why we wanted to focus on this area because there's a huge gap and um, private insurance doesn't cover it and people think that it might and Medicare doesn't cover it and they are surprised and their children are surprised when they get to this stage that they're on their own financially. Reed, you know, Jordan just touched on a subject which is really just kind of the definition of and our understanding of what long-term care means because it's easy to kind of fall into a trap saying, well, no, that's not gonna be something that I need in the future. I, I don't need, you know, fully assisted living, et cetera, et cetera. We're, nobody plans for that. Well, some people do plan for it um, because they save money um, for their retirement, and they assume that when they get older, they may need a little bit of help. But I think people have no idea of the staggering costs of an assisted living facility or even a home aid. And so they they really, uh, you know, the vast majority of people simply can't save enough for these costs. And I think that's what the series really underscores. What are some examples? What kind of costs are we talking about? Well, I mean, a, a nursing home, a assisted living facility, I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands a year. A homemade, it depends on how much uh, help you need. But, you know, again, that can be tens of thousands. Nursing homes are easily over 100,000. You know, a high-end assisted living facility, is it can start being that much. And, you know, if you're talking about several years, if you're talking about living there for more than a year or two, 
you find that you wipe out your savings. Um, and most people actually find that they're caught in the middle, that they don't qualify for Medicaid, which is the state federal program for the poor, um, but they really can't afford care on their own. And so many people actually go without care. And I think the series looked at, at various examples of that. Jordan, uh, one of the stats that leapt out to me when we're talking about costs here is that almost half of upper middle class couples with lifetime earnings of more than $4.75 million will also end up on Medicaid. Tell me about how it is that this system is structured where you have to exhaust what might be your life savings to qualify. The system is set up and it varies from state to state, but the most Medicaid programs require you to only have two or $3,000 before you can get coverage. And they also require you to exhaust most of your assets. And they're very, very complicated uh, rules in each state about you know what happens if the spouse is there and how do they get their money. Reed and I interviewed people that were trying to figure out how to do this and basically impoverish themselves so that they could get the care. And they had to hire private lawyers for the help. So you've got a system for the poor that costs money to access it. How much, for example, does uh, Alzheimer's or having cancer at an old age complicate the cost of care? Because I have to imagine that a facility that needs to keep its door locked to make sure that people aren't wandering out if they have uh, you know, dementia is going to be more expensive. A place like that is going to be more expensive, but it's also going to be harder to find. Um, that's one of the things that struck me is that even people who really wanted to place their loved one in a facility because that's where it was safer, sometimes really had very few options, um, particularly under Medicaid. You know, a lot of these people uh, have su substantial medical needs and there is an additional financial um, cost to that. And there is also a huge logistical cost. I mean, if you have to go um, to get chemo somewhere because you have cancer, that's a whole extra thing. The transportation is a huge issue. And so, you know, having, you know, both of these areas in the American uh, healthcare system filled with sort of pitfalls and trenches that you could slip into and then, you know, having to deal with the double issues at once. Uh, make it even more perilous for people and more financially brutal. Give me an idea of how many families are facing these stresses right now. What are the actual numbers? Um, it, it depends on how you define it. I mean, we looked, uh, what we were curious about for our, our data part of it was we took a very conservative definition of who needed uh, long-term care and found that about 8 million people needed it who are older, and about 3 million of those were not getting anything but that but that doesn't count a whole bunch of things that's that's really like at the point that you would qualify for being in assisted living or nursing home or such it's everybody i mean everybody who has a relative and one of the reasons that this series resonated so much is that i mean everybody either themselves has gone through this is expecting to go through it has it right now or has friends to know it through and what we tried to do for those people was to connect the dots because it's such a disparate system but no one is, and of course, <laughs> you know, all of us are, are in danger as well. So um, it's as universal a problem as you can get in, in healthcare, I think. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening to all of the people around the individual that needs the long-term care. I mean, you spoke to so many different people who are in really different levels of mental, emotional, financial stress. 
I, th- I think what was striking is how much people sacrificed for their uh, loved ones. Um, you know, I, I talked to Phelan Lewis, who was, um, you know, in England, had a promising career. She had to give it all up to move home to take care of her mother who had had a stroke. Uh, she incurred debt. Um, she really worried about being able at some point to move, you know, to get her own life in order. Um, I think people sacrifice all the time. It's it's fascinating. I think Jordan and I found families who, you know, moved um, an older relative into their own home um, uh, and really sort of changed their life to be able to accommodate that person. Yes, there's a tremendous both financial cost, you know, the def- you know, uh, deciding not to work, for example, or cutting back on work, incurring debt. But there's a real emotional cost too. And, and many of these families had children that they were also juggling along with older relatives. It's, it's, it's a very tough situation. One of the folks in your story I want to get to is Gay Glenn and her mother, uh, Betty May. They live in a nursing home in Kansas until she died in October. Tell me a little bit about their story. Yeah, I mean, Gay is a, a really tremendous person. She lived in, uh, she's about 60. She lived in Chicago. And when her mother um, needed uh, care, she moved back to her home in Kansas. And uh, the mother was in uh, Betty May before she uh, passed. She was in a nursing home and a private pay. And Gay um, had to manage all of that. And at the same time, she was living, they have very modest, uh, two modest rental places. She was living in one of those. And she has to pay rent to her mother under Medicaid rules because you uh, otherwise they would have had to sell it. So she, you know, went into her own financial troubles, uh, you know, just to take care of her mother. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, they had to sell the mother's house because the way Medicaid works is um, after you die, while you're allowed to keep a, a, a residence, you eventually have to repay Medicaid with your estate's assets. So. It was, a, you know, both financially and emotionally to have to be doing all these things at once, being there for your mother in the nursing home, you know, taking care of yourself financially. These are all the things that Gay had to to work through for multiple years. I mean, one of the stories that you really dug deep on was the challenge to find labor to be able to, even if you can afford a home health aid to do this, what's happening with the agencies? What's that marketplace like? So there, there has always been a chronic shortage, but it's it's gotten much worse as the job market in general has become stronger. And quite frankly, you know, these are low paying, very hard jobs. So it's very hard to fill. There, there's no question that the gap, there is already a gap. So people struggle to find workers and you struggle to find workers even under public programs like Medicaid. Um, Similarly, though, it seems in the private market and the public markets, uh, the, the situation is is only going to get worse. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how to you know build a workforce where people are available to help older Americans, but so far it just looks very scary. What are the costs that we are not planning for? What surprised you as like you know a consistent theme that came up in your reporting? that you wish more people knew about and thought about in terms of planning for their retirement or even long-term care? I think uh, personally what surprised me is how little planning 
and how little discussion public when i say public discussion i mean discussion among families before something happened um there's a tendency just not to talk about it for parents not to talk about their finances with their children not to talk about their wishes with their children it's almost as if we just hope if we don't talk about it it won't happen yeah I mean, the other problem with this in particular of long-term care is there's a limit to how much planning you can do. I mean, you can't plan to not have dementia. You can't plan when that hits. You can't plan if you fall and suddenly you can't take care of yourself. You can't plan when your spouse dies. And so that's one of the big problems is you've got this thing that is so unpredictable, happens to, you know, everyone in, you know, or everyone's at risk. And it's the area of the healthcare system that has the fewest institutional guardrails. So Reed, does it make a difference if we start planning in our 40s and our 50s? Um, you know, somebody's gonna watch this and say, well, if I spend everything, I'm gonna have to exhaust it all anyway before I qualify for Medicaid. Well, I, I do think saving does help, although I think Jordan is perfectly right in saying that you can't save your way out of basically what can be a catastrophic event. I mean, if you have, you know, if you need 24-7 care for 10 years, it's really unlikely, uh, even five years, it's it's so unlikely you're going to have been able to save enough. But I think it's important at least to start looking at your options and to start thinking about it. Again, one of the things both actually in terms of the reader's comments and, and in general, in the reporting, I was struck by how resilient people are. People can be very creative in finding solutions. And so it's important to start thinking about that early and, and start talking about that early. So Jordan, if we lack the kind of institutional guardrails, is there any kind of role for state government and a federal government to play? And have we taken those steps? Have we tried to take those steps? Um, well, we've <laughs> we've tried one of the uh, and failed on a on a uh, national level. Uh, we have failed on that. Uh, there was a provision that was a voluntary insurance provision in the Affordable Care Act, and it was uh, uh, repealed even before taking effect because it was unworkable. Um, so on the federal level, there's very little movement except for a tiny bit of tinkering around uh, Medicaid. Uh, there are some places. Uh, the state of Washington has instituted a mandatory. Uh, long-term care insurance program. So that's an example where workers can get, you know, if you're fully paid in about $36,000 to pay for long-term care. So that is something, but, you know, if if the average, uh, you know, assisted living facility is $60,000, you know, you can do the math and see that you, that even that's not going to go for as long. So there are little efforts like that. Um, there are, state of California is changing um, it's law so that it's a little bit easier to have more assets and get on Medicaid. There's some of that, but it's all very piecemeal. And overall, I think we were struck by the fact that there's so little political movement on this. And it's been the case for so many years that it's almost people, and it's not almost, it is, people just take it for granted this is the way it is. It's not like a lot of these other battles over, say, prescription drugs, where there's an active discussion on Capitol Hill. If... This is the kind of state of play in the United States. Are there other countries that we can look at as models that we might be able to learn from? We looked at a lot of countries. We looked at five in, in particular in this series. And I mean, the big problem is that there's not, uh, there's no momentum for a mandatory social insurance program in the United States. So 
you rule out the Netherlands, you rule out, you know, a lot of your northern countries. Um, there are some uh, programs in other in other countries that do do interesting things. I mean, Japan, I was really struck by uh, they have caseworkers who are assigned to each uh, to to everyone. And they get, um, you know, they have about a case load about 40 people, but just to have a navigator who helps out is something that that isn't a systemic change. But uh, again, one of the things that I was struck in the reporting was how many problems there are in the foreign countries too. They're grappling with this as well. They have the same aging infrastructure problem and uh, their long-term care programs are not as radically different in places like Canada and England as you would think that they would be, right? Those are places that it, they have you know, centralized public medical systems, but that's not the case with long-term care. So, I mean, the United States, you know, we have this great chart in this series that shows where the United States is in terms of spending on long-term care, and we are way down there for wealthy countries, but everyone has got the problem. What happens to the caregivers in this process? Uh, let's say if you are caring for your own family member, when there's an inevitable end to this, whether they see this as almost a sense of relief. Uh, we actually, there was people that I talked to, and I assume that we did too, who said that, who said, you know, there's a part of me that just wants this to over, and not just for themselves, but also for, you know, their parents. I mean, if you're in, you know, incredible pain, or you're just so deep into dementia, you don't know where you are. That's a, a, a painful way to live and to see someone that you love uh, live that way. Uh, and for the caregivers, there's, you know, there's a financial issue, the sacrifices that they have to make in terms of their own career and earning power, which then, of course, <laughs> becomes a future problem for their own financial solvency when they reach their stage. And then it exacerbates the family st uh, stresses. Um, and it's, it's, it's everything. So it's just a, a, a very, very, very difficult thing to be a caregiver. Uh, Reid, President Biden uh, recently signed an executive order that was supposed to help the pay and working conditions of home health care aides and workers. Is that going to make a difference? I think it's going to make a difference if it actually translates into something, right? I mean, the, the, for example, there's a proposal in Medicaid to make sure that more of the money that goes to the agencies actually flows to the individuals providing work. But that's a proposed rule. It hasn't happened yet. And, you know, while intentions are really important, um, it's very important to make sure that actually it translates into actual laws or new regulations. And so far, uh, that's been disappointing. Congress hasn't been willing to really take this on. Uh, I think the fundamental issue is that all of this costs money and it, the Republicans aren't interested in, in spending that money. And, you know, the Democrats have a long list of priorities. So, who knows whether at some point there will be real appetite to spend money and actually make some real changes. Reed Abelson of the New York Times and Jordan Rao of KFF Health News. Thank you both. The series called Dying Broke. You can find it in the New York Times. Thank you very much. Thank you. And finally, there's a special joy in hearing old time music played by a brilliant young musician. That's why 18-year-old banjo virtuoso Nora Brown is so extraordinary. Since she first picked up a ukulele at age six, Brown immersed herself in folk music, recording three full-length albums before starting college. Here's a clip of Nora playing the traditional tune Hop High on a historic gourd banjo.
latest EP is called Lady of the Lake. And Nora Brown joins me now from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Nora, it is good to see you. So in addition to being a star musician, you have enough time to attend Ivy League University. We can have a whole other segment to talk about time management uh, next time. But let's talk about your passion for music because we typically start these conversations by saying or asking, what drew you? to an instrument, what drew you to a genre? And that's a difficult question for you to answer because you started playing the ukulele at the age of six. So I won't ask what drew you to it, but what are some of your earliest memories playing the instrument? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think I remember like the first lesson I ever took. Um, I was learning from uh, a Brooklyn musician and a historian, um, really like, uh, important person in the Brooklyn old time scene. His name was Shlomo Pesco. Um, I remember going to his house and like, I think I'd practiced You Are My Sunshine to kind of show I had been working on the ukulele a little bit before the lesson. I remember like messing up and was like, oh my gosh, being upset about that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of fond memories of, that's like, I guess my earliest one, um, but um, yeah, fond memories of taking lessons with Shlomo. And um, yeah, we'd learn lots of old time songs and just playing and singing them on the ukulele. And um, you know, once I'd pick one up, he would like play fiddle with me or play banjo. And it was always like the best thing to be able to, you know, engage in music that way, um, which is, you know, so important to this tradition is. Well, we're watching, we're, we're looking so at I'm images of you. We started on that early on. We're looking at a video of you as a little girl playing the banjo, but it was your time with Shlomo, um, which sadly came to an end when he passed away. But at that time, you transitioned from the ukulele to moving on to the instrument of the banjo and playing old time music, which is um, fascinating that someone at your age would be interested in this particular genre. Explain to our viewers what old time music is. Sure, yeah. Um, well, old-time music is traditional American music. Um, placing it in context, it's kind of um, music before bluegrass that kind of informed those genres of bluegrass and, and old country music um, and, and folk music. But, um, you know, it ranges from fiddle tunes where you're just hearing a you know, fiddle play instrumental tunes, but also lots of songs. And um, there's a great ballad tradition as well, an acapella ballad singing that. It's kind of, you know, the the borders are kind of blurry on what belongs in what tradition. But um, yeah, I'd say old time music is the music that's, you know, passed down through many generations. It's, it's that type of traditional music. It's very old coming from, you know, different places, um, you know, the banjo is an African instrument, so we're, we're getting a lot of um, West African influences there through that instrument, but also, um, you know, there's lots of these broadside ballads coming from like England and Ireland influencing lots of lyrics and, you know, it's the whole, it's a whole thing to, to research, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, sides to it. and I love the, the role your family and your parents, particularly your father, um, plays in, in your career and your life thus far. I know he played with you. Um, he actually is a huge supporter of yours. And, and that is really critical given how young you were when you started down this career path. I would imagine you owe a lot to your parents. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, 
I definitely do. It's it's very important to, you know, well, this is obvious, but to have people around you who are encouraging you and supporting you, um, especially um, with music like this, I, I have a lot to thank my family for, especially especially my dad for, um, yeah, you know, um, yeah, he, well, I know on all different points, logistically as well as musically. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know you have something to play for us as well. Um, love to hear it. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll play some Jenny Put the Kettle On. This is a Virgil Anderson tune. Brown, amazing. Thank you so much and best of luck me. with your, your bright future ahead of you. We appreciate the time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And just a note, tonight we've taken you around the world discussing astonishing and important stories, brought you some incredible music as well. We want to tell you that none of this would be possible without our equally astounding executive editor, Annabelle who after more than a decade on the program is breaking our hearts and moving on to greener pastures, even though we have tried, we have tried to keep her selfishly with us. The show has gone from strength to strength to more strength under her leadership and winning three Emmys along the way. So the entire Amanpour team wanted to surprise her at the end of her final program with us to wish her the best of luck in the future and tell her how much we are going to miss her. This isn't goodbye, Annabelle. You always have a home with us at CNN, with Amanpour. We are cheering you on along the way. Thank you for everything. And thank you so much for watching. That is it for this hour. Goodbye from New York. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.